another episode of the Welcome to the J podcast hosted by me, Jahans Maniga, aka Canadian Red Bull. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the Phyllis 68 Media Network. Today, we have an extremely special guest. He's actually the person who gave me my nickname back my freshman year. He is a Lincoln Southeast High School grad and was named the 2003 Gatorade Player of the Year in Nebraska. He also set a school record at the time with 953 career points. He played two seasons at Kansas under Bill Self before transferring to Creighton. He is a four to- or 40% three-point shooter for the Jays. He is a college basketball analyst with Fox Sports 1 and also the host of his own podcast, the Nick Ball Podcast. He is the pride of Lincoln, Nebraska, and the man who actually gave me my nickname, Nick Bars in the building. <laughs> Welcome to the J, Nick. Okay. I, all right. So I had like a few notes written down. The first thing I wrote down was Canadian Red Bull. I wanted to make sure that you knew uh-huh. that was me. Like that, that was Bro, me. So I want to make sure you I've knew. I've been telling everybody that it was you and people don't remember it necessarily. I, I believe uh, I came off the bench, obviously, early in my career. And like I was jumping around, getting charges, getting loose balls and stuff like that. And you were the first to say, he brings out a lot of energy, kind of like like a Red Bull. Yeah. And then it just so, kind of stuck from then on. It, Bro, first of all, let me give you your flowers. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I've been able to market that quite a bit. So <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> I've, I've had a lot of nicknames that have not stuck, have not uh-huh. been any good, but that one, that one worked. And I think I might have been into like Red Bull vodkas at the time. <laughs> so it would never work. So I think I had Red Bull on my brain. Yeah. You came out there. You played with so much energy. I was like, this just, this works, man. This, uh, this, this works. I'm glad that it's stuck. It not only, not only my nickname stuck, but you and I guess Grand Gibbs, a combination of you two got the big swag moniker to stick to for Blue Jay Madness. So, man. You're a legend out here. You could just say you're two for two. You could just say that. Two for two. That's it. (laughs) The big swag one, though, that was for like the little late night, midnight madness thing we did. And if I'm not mistaken, I think you guys were trying to mess with Will a little bit. Like, was Will trying to give himself that nickname? Okay, so... I don't I don't remember it quite like that. I know that Grant started calling him that just because okay. not not like not for real. Like we were just kind of going at right. him at first, right? Calling him big swag. And then like he just blurted it out. And I don't know if we can go back and find that clip some, uh, somewhere. You'll see the entire bench when Grant says that we just all lose our minds because right. we didn't think that right. he was gonna blurt it out in front of everybody. And then it stuck and it really worked. And Will is still big swag to this day. To this day. I mean, because yeah. if you look, you, you know, you got a 6'11 dude from Waukee. You don't, you don't think like swag for right. a <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, so there was a little bit of irony with the nickname. And I think that's what Grant was going for. Of course. And I was like emceeing the little Midnight Madness thing. And Grant was like, call him big swag, call him big swag. I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to, I'm going to do that. And it's stuck. So I'm going to retire from nicknames. I'm going to, I'm two for two. Yeah. I'm out. I'm done. You got it, bro. Hey, let's get into it. First of all, how are you doing? How have you been? I feel like it's been so long since I've spoken. Yeah, I know. Uh, I'm great. Uh, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a father of two. Now, yeah. So that uh, congratulations. Me, yes, sir. That keeps me super busy all the time. Um, so things are good, man. I, I, I miss I was just telling my wife before I came down here. You and I used to not only just be with each other throughout the season when I'd be around the team, but then we were always Summer teammates. League. Summer, Summer league. league. So, so I got to spend like 
you know, all winter with you. Mm-hmm. We'd get a little break in the in the spring, and then we'd play summer league with each other for for a good month or two. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like Jahan's Managot was a consistent presence in my life, and now he's 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 gone, man. I don't get to see you very much at all. But no, I'm doing great, man. I really yeah. It's sad, man. Life has a habit of doing, you know, one of these, yeah. separating everybody. It's good every time you get a chance to just catch up like we are going to today. And hopefully it just leads to further, you know, conversations, you know, throughout the years and stuff like that. Because I do miss you, bro. Like, you're absolutely oh, right. Man. Like, you were yeah. such an in, in, uh, important part of my life. Once you gave me my nickname, then you became my <laughs> summer league teammate. Yeah. And then it just became this thing where literally for like nine out of the 12 months, I could guarantee that I'm going to see you. So. Uh, here, the, thing, the thing that was so cool about your, that whole, your whole group, Doug, you, Austin, Grant, Ethan, Will, Avery, I mean, Gregory, mm-hmm. Antoine, all those guys, Josh Jones, you guys. So I was, I was just, I just graduated a couple years before you guys. So I was like, we were similar in ages, but I wasn't like on the team, obviously. And right. you guys, you guys always made me feel like I was a part of it. You know what I mean? Like you, you really, really did. And that was, that's what was so much fun was like the four year run you guys had. I felt like I was on the ride with you. Now I wasn't driving the thing like you guys were, but just the fact that you guys were able to let me be a part of it was just is something that I still value to this day. Like, I'm not sure which four years I enjoyed more. My four years playing basketball or the four years watching you guys and being a part of that because you guys were uh I mean, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of people that got Creighton to where it's at, but the you your core group, I think, got Creighton in in position to get them to the big east. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now granted Doug was a huge part of that, but like of course. You know, you know, like we'll, we'll talk about this last group that, you know, that, that, you know, Mitch and Marcus and all those guys and they're mm-hmm. punching through the Sweet 16. You know, they've taken Creighton kind of to another level. But, man, your group, people need to never forget your group got Creighton in, in position to where things could really kind of take off. It was a hell of a run. And I have I still have dreams about some of those moments to this day. So. Let's talk about this year's group, though. You just mentioned them going to the Sweet 16. I've, for the guys that have come on the podcast since the season has been over, this is one of my favorite questions to ask them. In your opinion, because obviously it was the first time since the name got changed that the Jays made it to the Sweet 16, correct? So in your opinion, do you think that the Jays overachieved, underachieved, or did just about as well as you thought that they would when you thought about how good they could be in the preseason? That's a good question. I would say... You know, I, I, I'm going to cop out a little bit. I wasn't sure how, looking at just this group, I wasn't sure how they'd react or recover from Tyshawn leaving. People forget and, how big of a, a part Tyshawn played in last year's run. Like, before that whole COVID thing happened, uh, I mean, Marcus Agrossi also got hurt in that final game against Seton Hall at home, which clinched, you know, a share of the Big East yeah. uh, title tournament, or regular season tournament, I should, or championship, I should say. But Tyshawn plays such a pivotal role on those teams. He was the guy, if somebody got going, they stick Tyshawn on him. And then offensively, he could give you that word, too. He was yeah. such a good floor spacer and attacker of the of the basketball for the Jays. Him getting left off that team really kind of filled a void. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more later, especially defensively, in my opinion, for this year's Jays. Yeah. But, yeah, Tyshawn was such an important part of that team. So, so that's the thing that I thought, like, with, with Tyshawn, 
I thought the group, and you can call me a, there could be, you know, Creighton Kool-Aid in this, <laughs> whatever. Like, I thought that team, they were going to be a two seed a year ago before COVID hit. Like, I thought that team had final four good ability. Without Tyshawn, I feel like the more I watch this team, I think, I think Sweet 16 was about kind of where they probably were. Um, that's not to that's not to take anything away from them. And the reality is, you know, how it is in the game of basketball, you get to that point, anything yeah. can happen. You know, so, somebody gets upset, you know, you look, maybe you're playing Oral Roberts instead of Gonzaga mm-hmm. or whatever. You know what I mean? And then maybe things, uh, the path clears a little bit different. I think I maybe underestimated how much this team would miss Tyshawn Alexander. So I think heading into the year, I had him as like a preseason, I think a top five or six team. So I thought they had final four capabilities, but the more I watched him, the more I thought, man, that Tyshawn Boyd was a big one. So I think, I think they, I don't know how you phrase it. I think they properly achieved what they probably, what they probably could have getting to the sweet 16. It's funny because like if you ask some of the fans, a lot of them say that they underachieved, but I think there are some landmark losses that really kind of like change your perspective of what the season actually looked like. I think about obviously the, they got absolutely walloped against Georgetown in a Big East uh, tournament championship game. Like there's no if, ands, or buts about that part. So like that game kind of sticks out a lot of people's uh, mind and it, it changes their perspective of what they felt about the overall season. But I agree with you. Going into this year, I was like, well, me, I was like, make it pass the first weekend. I'm good. You guys can do whatever sure. you want yeah. after that. Right. Just right. make it pass the first weekend because, like, I our team failed at doing so. I always wanted to be the part of the first team that did it. Unfortunately, we couldn't. So, like, for the last, what has it been, Jesus, seven years already, that I was like, oh, like, we need to have a team that yes. can pass that first weekend. Right. And it finally happened, and I couldn't have been happier for not only Coach Mack, obviously, but the program in general. And the guys who, you know, they, they put in so much work to get to that spot, but uh, to go back to uh, Tyshawn a little bit, the first time that I realized how much the Jays missed him was on the road against UConn earlier on in the Big East slate when Book Knight had himself a ball game. And I was just like, there it is. That is what the team is missing, that that real perimeter defender. Because uh, Denzel did it at times. Uh, DJ tried to do it at times. But like Tyshawn was really that guy that Coach Mack had all the faith in the world uh, and to just throw on a guy that's getting hot. So, yeah, totally. Good. You know, tough, Tyshawn, tough got to replace. Tyshawn was really, you were really good at this as a defender. Cause oftentimes you, they just had you chase shooters Hell yeah. and you know, you, man, it's not much you chase Colt Ryan, Colt Ryan off of like 80 flare screens and 80 pin downs in one game. But, yeah. but the one thing Tyshawn was really good at, was identifying action and doing his work early. Like, okay, here comes the staggered. I need to get into his hip and get ready to chase. Like, he got really good at that, which allowed him to there be there on the catch, which obviously is oftentimes being a good defender is kind of like doing your work early and identifying things before they maybe happen. He was great at that. I thought they missed that. And then, you know, the reality is, Jay, is like this team, this, this Creighton team, wasn't as explosive as other teams in transition and they were a little bit more hot and cold from the three-point line than they were a year ago and I actually think a lot of that comes back to Ty because Ty could Ty was a secondary ball handler I mean he could play the point Mm -hmm. so you know he was another guy that could create and help push in the open floor and then obviously he was a knockdown three-point shooter so they're just like whether it was the defensive uh void from him not being there 
or even what their identity was offensively, playing fast and taking a lot of threes, you have you had a key cog in that where they just weren't quite as good in that area. But you you put it perfectly. Like before the season started, I think you ask every Creighton fan, what's the goal? Just get to the sweet 16. Exactly. Like just get to the second round. <laughs> exactly. Or get to the second weekend. You know, like, and so the fact that they did that, it's almost I even want to like go back and change my answer. It's almost hard to call it like they properly like. That was what the goal is. So great. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like the season was a roaring success in my estimation, just because they finally got over that hump. You have such a neat perspective of it, having played for the Jays before and now, you know, seeing it through a broadcasting lens. Talk to me about that connection between Marcus and Christian Bishop and how, as the year went on, it just got better and better and better. And basically those two guys carried the Jays past that first weekend. Uh, and and really created havoc for the opposing team's defenses because there was such there was such a high efficient play for them just a simple high screen and roll. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I think in terms of a pick and roll duo, those two are as good as. I mean, you think about Maurice Watson and Justin Patton. Mm-hmm. You think about Nate Funk and Anthony Tolliver. Uh, but those two, man, they had something special because because oftentimes. Anything you did, good offense beats good defense. Mm-hmm. So any way you were going to defend it, they could beat it. You know, okay, you're going to hard hedge. He's going to throw it up to the rim. Christian's going to go get it. You're going to switch. Marcus is going to roast that that switch. Uh, you're going to soft hedge. Marcus is outstanding coming off the off a ball screen and knocking down a three or a 15-footer. I just thought those guys in particular, maybe more so than any two players in Creighton history, had every answer to how a defense was going to defend a pick and roll, maybe outside of a pick and pop and a pure three point shooter. But at the, instead of picking and popping, Christian would just roll to the rim, you know? Right. And so I've Christian to me, I don't know what you thought when you first saw him. I'm curious to get your honest answer. I'm not going to front. When I first saw Christian and I, I saw him play, I was like, I don't know if I see it. Like, you know, okay. He's this like six, seven, He's kind of a wing. He's kind of a four man. He can't really shoot. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I just don't, I thought he was good. I just didn't know where he fit Creighton's system. And it's, it's kind of amazing how by accident with some unfortunate injuries and guys like Martine and Sam Froling leaving early, they move him to the five and he ends up exploding and being this matchup nightmare at the five. I'm just, I'm not sure there's a, there's a Creighton player I've ever watched that, not that I'm, you know, Dr. James Naismith and in, in 100% at like projecting players, but like I'm not sure there's a guy that exceeded my expectation of how good they could be in their career more than Christian did. And yeah, I mean, the, when you think of this core group of like uh, special plays, you know, you think of like for your group, Gibbs, Dakota, Gibbs, Doug, <laughs> right? You know, plays like, you know, flip back to Rocky trailer threes, mm-hmm. whatever it is. Like when you think of this group, I think the first image I think of is Marcus flip up to the rim, Christian, go get it. And those two guys were amazing. So to answer your question about my first uh, opinion of Christian, I just thought he was kind of like a fish out of water at first. He just kind of was this hybrid guy, six, seven, uh, decent enough size. If you could play him at the three, that would be perfect. But he, he didn't shoot the ball very well at that time. Uh, I didn't really see him handle the ball either. And you're right. Uh, Coach Mack has this unique way of finding like a niche for guys. And once I, once he allowed Christian to develop that, obviously he blossomed to what he is today. And then he, he chose yeah. to transfer Christian, you know, congratulations. Yeah. 
do what you got to do. Like we're all rooting for you at the end of the day, but to see his last two years, especially this year defensively, I think that's what I was most impressed with him about. I love the combination of him and Colt Brenner uh, throughout the year. Christian being this hard hedge, you know, get the ball of the, of the primary ball handler's hand. And Colt Brenner kind of being kind of like a softer hedge, you know, using right, his length right. at the rim to challenge shots. So I love the way that Mac used both those guys to their, you know, skill sets and to their strengths. But man, Christian just absolutely developed as soon as he figured out what his thing was. He, he did it to perfection. And let's not forget that he knocked down potentially the two biggest free throws in Jay's history to send him past that first weekend. <laughs> I know, right? I know. It's it's incredible, man. And I I had uh so I was doing Creighton and Butler this year on TV. I did both Creighton Butler games and I watched the game from a year ago, just so just you can see, okay, how did Butler handle this screening action or whatever, you know, and, and I'm watching, and this was early January when Christian and Denzel and Damian from a year ago, so not, not this year, but a year ago, right? those guys still hadn't fully hit their stride. And I was struck watching that, like, oh my God, it's incredible how much better Christian Damian and Denzel got from January of two thousand of last year till the end of this season. Those three guys took huge steps, and Christian, Christian and Damian in particular. But yeah, you know, Christian is one of the more unique players, and yeah, it's gonna be fun. Obviously, you know, you wish he would have stayed, right? Uh, but hey, man, I, I'm gonna be rooting like hell wherever he goes. Right. I mean, Christian's a great dude, fun player. Um, he had an unbelievable career, and I'm with you. Two biggest free throws in, in Creighton history, hands down. So we talked about Christian and Marcus Zagorowski. Denzel, DJ, and Mitch all decided, you know, to take their shot at the next level, uh, which brings me to my next question, which I actually share with one of our guys on Twitter who asked. <laughs> my question was... <laughs> I'm trying to set this up the right way. My question was, you know, what are the Jays going to do as far as, you know, contribution next year? Where do you see, you know, the office and all that stuff coming from? And the question that we got from Eric at Tornado Soul 7, he's asking us, hey, do you guys have eligibility for next <laughs> So, Nick, <laughs> so, answer the second question first. Do you, you got a year left in you or what? Can nah, you settle nah, up for Jay, Jay, I got one possession. One. <laughs> I got one, and then I'm going to be with Ben McNair in the training room oh, for a few man. months straight, man. So <laughs> I got one possession. You need one possession, I give it to you, but that's it. The contribution for the Jays, where is it going to come from? They give Crane fans, like, some hope here. Five, The starting five is basically leaving. It's going to yeah. be a whole new crop of guys who are going to take all of those minutes. What are the Jays looking like next year? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think, first of all, people need to, to take a deep breath it's not like this hasn't necessarily happened before, right? I mean, look, look no further than your group, you know, your group left and, you know, Greg McDermott was, is able to find ways to put guys in the right position, recruiting development, all those things mm -hmm. for guys to take enormous strides. I mean, look at, look at what we're talking about. We were talking about Damian and Denzel and Christian, those guys making big strides. Who's to say Antoine Jones, Alex O'Connell, Sharif Mitchell, and Ryan Kalkbrenner, those guys can't take enormous strides strides as well and I always I always feel like you know production and greatness is sometimes just an opportunity away you don't know what a guy is capable of doing until you ask them to do it 
They didn't right. ask Ryan to give people work for 30 minutes on the block a game because that he only was playing, you know, 12, 15 minutes a game. Same thing with Alex and Antoine. So even with Sharif, he was coming off the bench in spot minutes. He was just going to harass the other team's point guard, empty the tank, go sit down. So I think with those four guys, I think it's got to start there. Granted, they're going to bring in some impact transfers who we probably don't know about yet. Um, you know, there could even be, a, a, you know, some of these freshmen coming in, whether it's Nemhard's little brother is a, a pretty good little player. Mike Miller's son's a, a pretty good little player that's going to be coming in as well. You got the two foreign kids who both tore their knees. They're going to be coming in, uh, pretty talented dudes. Uh, so I, I think the guy that there, – there are two things. I think Sharif is the guy that I think really has to have a big offseason. I always feel like – the, the guys that have played the most need to lead the charge initially. And Sharif has right. played more minutes at Creighton than any of those other guys. So I think Sharif needs to have a big offseason, especially from a leadership and establishing that work ethic and that culture standpoint as well. And then Alex O'Connell and Antoine Jones are really talented, man. Like, I mean, O'Connell was on the floor with R.J. Barrett and Zion Williamson and Cam Reddish. Like, this guy can really play. And – I've been in that world. I think I don't, I can't remember your freshman year, how much, what your minutes were like, but I've been in that world where you're not as Jay. Like, I don't know if you ever, where you go, you show up at the game and it's like, I might play 10 minutes. I might play 24 minutes. I might get no shots. I might get seven shots. And that's a hard world to live in. Every shot takes on greater importance. It's hard to relax and let loose and play with confidence. And unfortunately, Alex O'Connell and Antoine Jones kind of found themselves in that world where every game you didn't quite know how many minutes, how many shots were going to come. Well, this year, I expect both of them to be able to relax because they know those opportunities are coming. I know the talent's there. So I think Sharif's got to lead the charge. But then I think those two dudes, man, I think they got an opportunity to take big strides. I agree with you. It's it's tough to kind of find, you know, your your position let's say uh when you're not quite sure when the shots are coming from even like when coaches are running sets for you and you know you might get a swing swing and that's your very first shot of the game it's a corner three and you're not really in the flow of the game yet if you miss that shot like the world is crumbling down on you so with more opportunities obviously those guys are going to feel a lot more comfortable um i'm rooting hard on the nemhard kid because you know me i love my canadians yeah you he's going to be the the second canadian in the program's history me being the one and only so i'm sad to see that title go but i'm excited to root for a canadian in a jays jersey for sure i've I've been waiting quite a long time for it hey coach mac man if you're listening to this go recruit more canadians please come on man (laughs) we're worth it i promise you (laughs) (laughs) i love it i absolutely love it man (laughs) Hello. So this was like a weird year, obviously, with COVID and everything. We have, we're not going to really know the effects of that, especially mentally for the players until further down the line where, you know, they're able to speak their truth a little bit more. But I'm interested in knowing for you as a broadcaster, what were some of the differences between this year, obviously, and years past? Oh, everything, man. <laughs> I mean, it was it was really, really weird to broadcast games, first of all, remotely i mean i was fox was sending me to charlotte they have a, they have studios out in charlotte so i mean you're sitting in a imagine sitting in your in your basement looking at a tv screen and you're and calling talking. and talking you know what i mean like and 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 sometimes your play-by-play guys not even next to you so your play-by-play guys in atlanta or something like that and you know you you got to have the chemistry and the timing there you're trying to 
bring the energy, you know, because you're used to being in the arena where you can feel the energy. So naturally your voice can kind of climb and raise with stuff like that. And then I always feel like when you're not courtside, you lose a sense of the crowd. You lose a sense of the physicality of the game, the speed of the game, because sometimes that doesn't always completely translate when you're watching it on TV. And then for me, you maybe miss little interactions that the camera doesn't show. I'm looking down at the bench. I see, you know, Jay Wright saying something to Colin Gillespie or Greg McDermott saying something to Sharif Mitchell. There's a cool little back and forth or whatever. So I thought all those things were really, really challenging. And then when you actually were in the arenas, when there's nobody in there, it's just totally yeah. different. And I was surprised as a broadcaster how much the crowd feeds into how you're kind of calling the game. There's something they call in the business called uh, either laying out or letting it breathe. So, you know, here comes Grant Gibbs, kick out, extra pass, Managa three to cap a 9-0 run. When you hit it, Sometimes it's better for the broadcaster just to lay out and let the roar of the right. crowd okay, I got tell you. the story, yeah. right? You know, and you're conditioned for that. So here comes a big shot. You're used to okay, lay out or let it breathe. Well, you're letting it breathe for for tumbleweeds in the background. You know, somebody's cell phone's ringing or something like right. that. You know? So. All those things were, were just completely different, you know, and making sure that you're bringing the energy with it. Um, not being able to go to shoot arounds was different. Um, we usually can go to shoot arounds, talk to the coaches, talk to the players, see how they're maybe guarding certain actions or whatever. You're having to do these Zoom calls with all the coaches. So, man, everything was different, Jay. Everything. I, I couldn't even imagine. Like, I'm playing overseas right now, so I've kind of got used to empty arenas. But one thing that was cool about watching on TV and like listening to the guys' call is we actually got to hear a lot of communication on the floor. And like for me as a fan watching, I thought that was like pretty cool because like, uh, you know, like the broadcaster is supposed to fan crowd and all that stuff kind of takes away from the communication on the floor. So I thought it was really interesting and a neat perspective this year. But man, I, I missed the roar of the crowd. Like you said, like I, I don't even think about calling a game or how you guys are, are taught to do so. But I... I do now vividly remember if something big happens, it's, that's not the time usually that uh, you hear the broadcasters say a lot of things. You have like a Mike Breen who will be like, bang, bang. Like that's his call. But after yeah. that, it goes quiet. Yeah, and you hear the crowd go crazy. So yeah, yeah it's, it's weird that we went this whole year or, or I went the whole year watching games and never heard that roar really from the crowd. So well, you know what's man, crazy I, I, was, so Creighton got to where they were having – I want to say they had like 1,800 fans in there. That you know, they, so they had a little under 2,000. And man, you go from zero to even 1,800. I remember I was doing the Villanova game. I was like, man, it's cracking in here. It's, like, it is loud. It is it is crazy right now. You know, and it's 1,800 people. Like I I don't even know. Like I'm not even gonna be able to. It's gonna take me a few games to get used to 18,000 again like of the roar because even just a little roar a little a little environment made a big difference but the majority of the games there was nobody in there and so it was it was totally different and I thought I actually thought it hurt a team like Creighton because Creighton's a team that'll put runs on you you know like right and and without a like I think of that Nebraska game where that like Creighton kept going on like that 6-0 run and then they couldn't turn it into a 10-0, 12-0 run. And then finally the, the levy eventually broke in the second half and, 
you know, Christians windmilling it and it, you know, and they're, and yeah. they kind of get that run Open the floodgates. Yeah. yeah. But you, you played in, in, in games at home where, you know, a, a 7-0 run turns into a 13-0 run or a 12-0 run like that because of the crowd, you know? And I thought Creighton couldn't get the spurred ability that they usually have because the crowd wasn't there. And so I think it impacted the game more than people think, too. Or a 7-0 run feels like a 13-0 run just because of how the crowd is. Like, it might not be that crucial, but, you know, the crowd is behind you, so it feels a lot bigger than what it is. Yeah, I just I, – I can't wait. I think those guys deserve it. I feel bad for this group of guys especially because, man, what a be- what better group of guys, you know, deserves that roar of the crowd night in, night out than the first team to bring the Jays to the Sweet 16. So I, I kind of feel bad for them that they didn't get to experience, you know, all that love. But I'm sure they got it on social media. Uh, I, so. I talk great things about them. I know that you have too. So I hope they feel the love. But there's nothing like that home crowd, man. There, there's nothing oh, no. like the best, it. man. It's the best. So you were a guy who chose to transfer. Uh, we're seeing some astronomical transfer numbers. I'm, I'm interested in seeing what your take is. And obviously, in my opinion, it kind of hurts the product, which is college basketball a little bit. But I'm all for players deciding, hey, this isn't working out for me. Maybe some of these promises that you guys gave me haven't been fulfilled or whatever the case may be. Uh, I'm going to choose to pack my things and leave. What's your take on it? And where do you think that, you know, leads to, I guess, college basketball's product either going up or going down due to all these transfers year in, year out? Yeah, I mean, I think I think eventually, at least fingers crossed what you hope. I think it's going to we're seeing a surge. I think it'll eventually kind of normal, like level out a little bit. I don't know if we're going to see 2000, 3000 transfers every year. I mean, I just don't see how that's possible. So I think, I think, first of all, everybody needs to let the spike kind of come and then kind of hope that and expect that it's going to kind of normalize. Uh, you know, it's, I, think, I think this whole topic is all a matter of your perspective. Like, from players' perspective, you love this. And from a what's fair perspective, it's what's right. Like, if, uh, if Porter Moser can leave Loyola Chicago to go to Oklahoma to be a head coach because he deems that the best situation for himself. Yeah. Well, then why can't a player leave and go somewhere and be eligible right away? Because he believes that's the best situation for himself. So from a standpoint of what's fair and what's right, it's a no brainer. Coaches obviously don't like it because it makes it probably harder to recruit and retain players um, I, I think it's maybe gets harder for guys to be patient and wait their turn. Um, cause every, you know, if, if lots of times if guys don't get the, the starting role right away, they might, they might bounce and go and go somewhere else, but I'm with you and I get worried about, you know, we talk about the coach's perspective, the player's perspective. What about just the, the, the college basketball as a whole perspective? I, I get worried about, that the fact that I think the biggest thing that plagues and and hurts college basketball is continuity. There's not enough continuity in, in college basketball, whether it's because of one and dones or now transfers. Every year is just a brand new roster for a lot of teams. And the majority of time, the best basketball you see comes from when 
core groups are together for years because they develop basketball. Loyola Chicago like, is a great example of that this Loyola year. Loyola Chicago, right? Or you guys, yeah. like you, your core group, like you guys developed that chemistry that was off the charts. And basketball is a chemistry sport. Yeah. More so than any other sport, it's a chemistry sport. And so I get I get worried that the the overall product's going to erode a little bit because of all the movement and lack of continuity. And then I do get worried about some of the now people are always going to watch the NCAA tournament and people are going to be into college basketball. But a part of what is fun is following a group for a handful of years, like the group we just saw, mm-hmm. like the, your group that of that, that came through and, and had an amazing four year run. That's fun as a fan. What's harder is if you're you've been a Kentucky fan for ten years and every year you got to get out your program. Yeah. Like, okay, who's our point guards? Who? Yeah. Who's this? You know, like right. And and that so you don't get that connection with with people. So just like anything else, there's 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 truths to every perspective, right? Like I I I can see how it's tough for the coaches. I see how it's hard for how it's maybe not great for the basketball as at whole. But I think ultimately, Jay, like. It's what's fair and what's right. And coming from a guy that transferred, like, I'd have loved to not have to sit out of here. I was just about to ask you about that because, yeah. like, I, I I always – I never understood that rule to punish a player who, you know, didn't have a great experience at first, to punish him further by having him sit out of here for whatever reasons. Like, you you brought up Porter Mosa going to Oklahoma. They're not asking him to sit out of here for nothing or not get huh. paid for nothing as he just kind of sits around and waits for, you know, his crop of guys to come in. That never made any sense to me. No. And I know for me, there's some people that have the, the some people, the red shirt years are really good for them. They get stronger. Uh, they get more, they, they improve, they get better, whatever. I had a heart, my red shirt year crushed me. Like it, it ruined my confidence. It ruined my flow. Um, and so I had a hard time with that red shirt year because when you know you are not playing, like it is no matter what, you are not going to be able to play in a game. It messes with you. And we talk about how basketball is a chemistry sport. Well, individually, basketball is a confidence sport. And if you're not confident, it can be really, really challenging to go out there and play well. So I know for me, I'd love to be able to just go to Creighton right away and play right away. Um, so I, I I, think, again, like like a lot of things, there, there are – I see a lot of different sides of it. But ultimately, what's fair and what's right. What's fair and what's right is to let these players exercise the same freedom that everybody else can in terms of if there's a better situation that they believe is better, they can go and pursue it and be eligible right away. It's, it's, a, it's a no-brainer in that regard. I mentioned the Open that you were 40% three-point shooter for the Jays. How badly do you wish that you could lace them up in this era where guys are literally putting up 33-point shots tonight, like legitimately? Bro, what would you have done if you were 18 right now, getting recruited by the Jays next year is your freshman year? I know you'd be in the yeah. gym chucking up three. So tell me, how would you have felt like just playing in this era? Like, it's not only the Jays. Like, if you watch the NCAA tournament, like, offensive team kind of ran the show, especially at the end. Two of the top five offensive team with Baylor and Gonzaga was in the finals. So talk to me about that, brother. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, listen – I. I'm not one of those guys that has any sort of – I don't look in the mirror and see Clay Thompson staring back at me. Like, I don't think I – don't, I don't want to paint it like, man, I was 
I was the truth, man. You know, like right. I, was, I was, I was a nice, I was a nice role player, right? Mm-hmm. But systems matter yeah. and eras matter. Like I, there's no question this era of basketball would have fit my skill set way better. There's a lot more three-point shooting. There's a lot more, uh, it's a lot more based on skill and IQ. And then the other thing, sneaky, you know what killed me? The five seconds. Yeah, me too. Hey, look, I, I was actually supposed to be Antoine's backup point guard, but that five-second count pushed me as a shooting guard in me. Jay, I, I'm not, when, when, they, when they changed that rule, I wanted to go pop champagne, right. celebrate, or cry because I'm like, why couldn't you guys have changed that rule when I was playing? Especially, like, I started at point guard my – at the beginning of my junior year, I was our starting point guard. Well, and then even at Kansas, when I would come in, I was Air Miles backup. Man, I'm, I, here comes this white dude off the bench in the Big 12. These guys were like, we are heating this guy up. Right, pick him and, up, you know, pick him up. They're trying to, you're trying to break the count <laughs> while wings are getting open and initiate offense. Mm-hmm. I don't think – I think that's one of the more underrated things that has changed in basketball, the fact that you don't got to break that count is huge. So like, yeah, I'd have loved to take more threes. I'd have loved it even more if there wasn't a five second count. Man, that thing was horrible for me. Man, it really like separated the boys from the men when it comes to ball handling and being able to resist pressure. Like I said, man, Coach Max saw that I was struggling with it super early on and pushed me to the side. So I'm right there with you. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Like, Jay, work on your catching and shooting and you'll be fine. I'm like, all right, let's I go. Cool, let's do cool. it. <laughs> Speaking of catching and shooting, Mitch Ballack has cemented himself as one of the best three-point shooters in Korean history. I'm anxious to hear your take on this. Yeah. With all the legendary shooters, this is, you know, Let It Fly University. With all the legendary shooters at Korean University, where does Mitch rank amongst the all-time greats? Man, I mean, because it is, like, every, every program kind of has their thing. Uh, like when I think of Purdue basketball, I kind of think of big men right now. Um, when I think of North Carolina, I sometimes think of point guards. Like when I think of Creighton, I think of shooters. And there, to me, there is a there's a Mount Rushmore of shooters. Oh, that's that's a great Kyle. way to put it. Yeah, I love it's, that one. It's Kyle, it's Doug, mm-hmm. it's Ethan, uh-huh. and it's Mitch. Gotcha. Those are the four best shooters to ever put on a Creighton uniform. And all of them were a little bit different in kind of like Kyle and Ethan were probably the most similar in how they did their thing. You know, Doug could make every shot imaginable. Um, Mitch, maybe Mitch and Ethan had the best range in terms of being able to shoot it from anywhere. But I don't know, man, like in terms of ranking them, like, I just know he's he's one of the top four. Mm-hmm. I'd have a hard time putting him above. I mean, Kyle's one of the five. Kyle Corver is one of the five greatest statistical shooters to ever live. Period. Exactly. Like not just great. Like you just go check the numbers. Like of all, he's of one all of the time, best shooters yeah. ever. So it's hard for me to sit here and say that anybody's above that dude. Right. Um, I know Ethan would think he'd kick all their asses. <laughs> <laughs> 
hundred percent. So Ethan is the wild card in this because his confidence is like when you said, "Oh, when you look in the mirror, you don't see Clay." Talk. Yeah. Ethan sees Ethan. He thinks he's better than Clay. So oh, yeah. I think that's that's what Ethan's the wild card in this conversation. Because let's just say, like, we were to do like a traditional three-point competition between those four guys, Ethan to this day would walk into the gym thinking, "Oh, I'm walking away as as the winner here." Oh, so, no question. No man, question. And you. Real quick, you need to. We're thinking that we're, we're speaking of shooters here. I don't think, like, I almost think there needs to be a Netflix documentary on this or something. The Anthony Tolliver story, oh, yeah, is one of the most unbelievable basketball stories. Do you realize this dude was a pure back to the basket, yeah, who took I, I checked it before I came on with you. Guess how many threes he made his senior year. Probably a handful, I would imagine. I'll say seven. Four. The dude made four threes his senior year. He made zero as a freshman, one as a sophomore. I think he made 15 or 16 as a junior. But this dude, and he shot this flat-footed set shot. And we ran, like, one set for him, like a little pin-down thing for him. It wasn't like he was shooting any other shot other than, like, a special for him. Right. And this dude becomes a stretch four three-point specialist for 15 years in the NBA. Like, it's unbelievable. Still, still <laughs> getting jobs to this day. Shout out Anthony Tolliver for that's signing right. with the Sixers. So, hey, Matt, the man's still moving. <laughs> because that's what's crazy. It's like, now all of a sudden you throw in that cat. Like, if there's a shooting contest, and now nowadays Tolliver would walk into that and be like, listen, this is what I do. Right. I get paid to make, to shoot and make threes. And so it's just, I always feel like the Anthony Tolliver story doesn't get like talked about enough in that regard. Like he, this dude was a pure five man that made himself into a stretch four in the NBA. And it's, it's, it's unbelievable, man. It's nuts. That story kind of reminds me of Kenny Lawson Jr as well because like by his senior year Kenny was taking a popping a lot yep. but I have a feeling that it's because he had to deal with Gregory Echenique and that was down there on the defensive end that his range just got stretching further and further so that's my that. that's my running theory uh but you you could have it you could run with it if you want anybody can run right. with it if you want. that's just that's just my theory right there yeah Gregory Man, how big of a beast was that guy that, I don't I, blame you Kenny I, I miss just pressuring guys, knowing that Gregory was right behind me just to swat things away. Like, I really miss, like, there's not that many great shot blockers in Europe, so I could be doing my thing on the perimeter. If I get cooked, like, I really have to, like, work to recover because sometimes I would just funnel guys baseline and Greg would just be waiting and he'd be swatting things away. So, yeah, he was an absolute beast. And, like, he's another guy that we don't talk enough about because the Creighton game kind of moved away from, you know, guys like him. But if we went back to how we used to play, like traditionally with a dominating, you know, five man down low and Coach Mack continued to recruit like that, I think more conversations would be had about how good Greg actually was. No, he was no. an absolutely great player. Well, I always felt like the biggest one of the areas mid majors, which what Creighton was when they were in the Valley, some of the hardest things for mid majors to do when they get a crack at a at a, you know, a power conference team was defend one-on-one -on -one in the post. Like, it was just yeah. impossible for a lot of teams. Mm -hmm. Man, Henson, Zeller, it didn't matter. It was like Gregory's got a – Gregory yeah. can guard anybody one-on-one -on -one in the post. So, I was – it always was cool to watch teams – 
trot out against you guys with Gregory? Because you could tell even at the jump ball, people are like, holy shit, look yeah. at this guy. Like, he, this dude, he, I mean, people are Gregory is a massive, yeah. strong guy. And when he would, when he get that arm bar out there in the post, boy, you weren't going anywhere. My favorite thing about Greg would be, you know how we used to just commute to the uh, airport, like, after a practice or whatever, we get yep. Jimmy John's, go to the alleyway. The cars will be waiting for us, and we just commute all together. Even the coaching staff was like, Greg, you want the front seat? Like, <laughs> everyone understood that this is a massive individual. You're not putting him back there with two or three other guys. So right, right, the right. car he was in, he was like, hey, you guys know I have to get the front seat, right? And there was like no questions, no if, ands, or buts about it. Greg was getting the front seat wherever we went for whatever reason. So, I like it. I agree. Man. And that's my guy, man. G, man, I miss you, bro. We need to run it back at some point. I don't know how we're going to do it, but we need to get that done. He was uh, awesome. Nick, your favorite place to play in the Valley and your favorite place to broadcast in the Valley, Omaha notwithstanding. I'm assuming the home crowd is what you love. So yeah. on the road in the Valley, your favorite place to play, go. In the Missouri Valley Conference, my favorite place to play was at Wichita State. Wichita State, <laughs> They great crowd, kind of an angry crowd. Uh, yeah. I loved angry Soft crowd. <laughs> so I, I love I love playing there, but see, this was too bad. Like when I was playing, Southern Illinois was the rival. Like it wasn't really yeah. Wichita. Southern was the rival, and I'll never get the first time I played at Southern Illinois. You know, Coach Altman's telling us like, hey, "Fellas, you're going to be." You're, be loud in there, they're gonna be mean, all that stuff. And I'm kind of like, okay, you know, I mean, how bad can this be? And I'm gonna get out there, I'm warming up, I'm warming up, and a little kid in a Creighton shirt, a little kid like this kid, Jay, is like seven, six years old. He's got a Creighton shirt. He walks in front of the Southern Illinois student section. These students are like, boo, just giving it to this six-year-old. This dude bursts into tears, this little kid, and he runs back to like his parents. I was like, I'm sitting there warming up. I'm like, oh, this is gonna be, this is gonna be a different kind of a deal here today. But so those two, those, those yeah. two, Wichita, Wichita had a blast in. Southern was was always cracking because it was the rival. And then the first the favorite place, favorite place to broadcast in in the Big East or the Valley? In the Big East. In the Big East, it's Hinkle. Yeah. Hinkle Fieldhouse, Historic. Butler. Yeah. And it, it's just, it's got everything you want. It's got history. It's unique. Um, you, you got the natural sunlight coming through the windows, man. Hinkle Fieldhouse, without question, my favorite place. Last question I got for you, Nick, and I'm going to let you go. I know we've been talking all night. I know we could, no. but we have to keep some sort of <laughs> timeline so that I got, you know, enough people to have ears on this podcast. Which one of the five guys from that starting five of this past year is going to be toughest to replace? I mean, I got to say Marcus. <laughs> I mean, I just I – just because I think he was the most important for their ability to establish tempo, what they did in the half court. Like, it all started with that guy. <laughs> and his ability – he could do it all, Jay. Like, he could get 10 assists. He could score 30. He could – hit mid-range, he could hit threes, he could get to the basket. And then I thought he had a competitive, a competitiveness that was infectious that kind of spread throughout 
everybody else. And then he was also the closer. Like when it was when it was winning time, it was Marcus time. And so it's not to take away from any other guys. Like all those guys brought valuable things to the table. But to me, what Marcus Zagorowski brought to the table is going to be the hardest to replace because you, dudes, dudes like that don't come along and come around very often. Like that's a that's a special, special player. Not only that, he had the confidence too to step into those big time shots, like a swagger about him that was infectious, like he said, for the rest of the squad. Man, I remember thinking if the Jays have a chance to make it past their first weekend, it would be because of Marcus. Because what we've been missing in the past is a point guard like that. When you know the when push comes to shove, you could just yeah. give him the ball. He runs the offense. He gets everybody involved, anyways. But also, we could be like, hey, one four flow, you will get this one. You know, we've had you know great shooting guards like Marcus Foster who was able to do it, but guys like Marcus Foster, you have to get him the ball, right? Yep. Marcus Zagorowski, you can just inbound it to him and, and good things going to happen from there. So I agree with you. I think it's kind of like a unanimous call. Marcus is going to be very difficult to replace. I think from an energy and leadership standpoint, what DJ brought to the table is also going to be very difficult to replace. I'm anxious to see who's going to fill in all those shoes. Like we're all here, you know, talking about next year already. We haven't even I know, man. people yet, but I... man. I'm so excited, and especially like the the thinking that hopefully crowds be back in the arenas cheering the boys on. Man, I, I can't wait to see what this next group is going to look you, like. I'm with you, man. I and that's what's too bad is I think because there's been so much movement with the roster, it's caused people's anxiety for next year has taken over the happiness and 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 reflection of what you just saw. You know what I mean? Like I hope I hope people. It's like, yeah, there's a lot to a lot of voids to fill with next year's roster and moving forward. But like, I trust this staff. Greg McDermott's done this before. He's hired great coaches. He's found guys to, to fit his system. You know, like this dude's a really good coach. So Jays fans need to trust him, but also take a moment and like appreciate what you just saw because you just don't you don't get groups like that very often, man. That was a that was a fun, fun team to watch play. I never thought, Jay, I never thought I would see another team that was as fun to watch as your teams were to watch. And this team in spurts, there are moments they were just as fun to watch as as you guys were, man, with the ball movement, the transition, the way they they played together, the chemistry. It was a lot of a lot like how you guys were. This team that we just saw this year was for sure my favorite team of all time to watch. Obviously, not my teams included. I participated yeah. in it. I didn't really watch. But that uh, Maurice Watson and JP and Marcus Foster and Kyrie, bro, that was a team to watch. Because uh -huh. like I said it so often on this podcast, any given night, some craziness could happen. Like, you know, the lobs are going to be there, but is it going to be a steal, a transition lob? Like, a, you know, like. And those guys can really suffocate you with runs. You talked about how runs and, and like the crowd, getting the crowd going really hurts uh, opposing teams, especially when they're in not CenturyLink Center anymore, Shy Health Center. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That team did that in abundance. So that was another great team to watch. So those were the top two teams for me. I'm going to really miss that this team, group of guys. That team fit. I don't, in all of Creighton history, I'm not sure the team, uh, there's a team that fit better. Like Maurice was this set the table point guard. Marcus is just this bucket. Savage, yeah. Kyrie, you know, Kyrie will just lock anybody up. Cole Huff 
is the perfect stretch four. Yeah. And then Justin, Justin, Justin Patton would make two or three holy plays again. Yeah. Like there was a block, a dunk, a three, like catch and put it on the deck where you just, you know, you look at everybody you're watching the game with like, did you just see that dude? Like the, their skill sets just like fit perfect. It would have been fun to see if Maurice would have, if Maurice would have tore his ACL, what that team could have done. Yeah. But that's what I'm talking about. Like Greg McDermott, that's why I just talk like this dude built a top 10 team with you guys. He built yeah. a top 10 team with the team we're talking about with Maurice and all those guys. Then he built another top 10 team with Marcus and Mitch. Like this dude, this dude knows how to identify talent, put a roster together. Like, yeah, it's, it's always a lot of worries when there's a, there's a lot, you lose a lot, but I trust that he's going to be able to, to find the right pieces and put them all in place. Nick Baugh, thank you so much, brother, for stepping into the J with me. I know this isn't your first time at the J, but virtually it is. And I appreciate you so much for taking your time out of your, I'm sure, busy day uh, to spend a little bit of time with me, to talk to the fans, you know, and, and kind of go down memory lane of sorts and also talk about this past year's team. Any last words before we close it out? I always tell, I was, it was fun. I went on Blue Jay banter and they asked me about like, iconic plays in Creighton history and favorite moments in Creighton history. Your drive layup against Wichita State in which would have been your junior year in the Missouri Valley Conference tournament championship game. One of my favorite moments. And you probably don't remember this during the frenzy on the floor. I kind of snuck up behind you and you and I had this big big hug and embrace that like it, yeah. you, for some reason it's weird what what you remember and what you what you don't but like for some reason I always remember that embrace and I always tell people you're you're one of the all-time all-time teammate great guys to ever come through Creighton and that's not to minimize how good you were as a player because you were a great shooter great defender but man your your personality and everything that you brought to the table far exceeds everything else. And that's saying a lot because you were a hell of a player, but I love you, man. You, you are a, you're one of a kind. I'm, I'm glad I could see your face. And next time you're in Omaha, we got to get together, man. Absolutely, man. I appreciate you, bro. You know how much I love you, man. You're, you're my guy. You're my guy for sure. Guys, don't forget to like and follow the Field of 68 Media Network for more content such as this from a bunch of different hosts representing alma maters. I have Jahans Maniga. This is my guest, Nick Baugh. As always, Stay safe and go Jays.